We're in the book of Nehemiah. Pastor Rod started this a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, long before President Trump promised to build a wall, God decided to build a wall. And that's what this book is all about, the, the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a story of fresh starts and new beginnings. You know, you can ask yourself, what does an event that took place thousands of years ago, halfway around the world, something, it was a construction project. What does that have to do with me? How does that affect my life? And yet we all would like to have a do-over in our lives, wouldn't we? Some people want to do over for their whole life, and other people just have those, those moments of your past that you wish you could do over, that you wish you could somehow rebuild your life. This story tells us that no matter how bad things are, or how long things that have been bad, there's always an opportunity. It's never too late to repair a broken life. The book of Nehemiah tells us how to build a life, how to have the life we instinctively really want, how we can become the people we've always wanted to be, but never seem to be able to be. And I got to tell you, chapter three is a, a difficult chapter. It's one of the most difficult chapters to teach of in the, out of in the entire Bible because it just simply lists the people who built the wall. And that's why we don't really have a main text out of chapter three because it would be an exercise in pronunciation that I would absolutely fail. As a matter of fact, this, this chapter is so difficult that Rod left town and asked me to teach it. <laughs> but you know, there's parts of the Bible that seem to have no relevance to our lives at all. We read them and say, man, what is that there for? There's nothing here, nothing to glean from. And yet that's not true. You know, back in the 80s, before the, the Berlin Wall fell, we used to smuggle Bibles in behind the Iron Curtain. And I saw such a hunger for God's word. I saw entire congregations that shared one Bible. I saw hand-copied Bibles because they didn't have one of their own. And and, and to see that hunger for God's word and you realize that you can't plumb the depths of wealth found in the Bible. And, and uh, I was talking to Jill uh, before the service and uh, I was telling her, guys, this, this is really a tough chapter. I mean, I don't know what to say and, uh, you know, how does this make relevant? And, and I was telling her about a story that took place and, and I talked to a man who had a friend and he was getting up there in age and he knew his time was short. And so he literally took the Bible that he had his most precious prized possession, and he literally cut every verse out of his Bible. And he would go out on the streets and he would slip Bible verses to people on the street. And he said one guy got the Bible verse that said, Methuselah lived 969 years and died, and he gave his heart to Jesus. And my, the, the guy that I was talking to went back and talked to him and says, why, why would you accept Jesus into your heart over that verse. And he says, well, I was looking at that verse and I thought, this guy, I don't know who he is, but he lived to be almost a thousand years old, but he still died and I'm gonna die someday. And I wonder what's gonna happen then. That just shows you that what seems to be so inconsequential in our life found in scripture can be very consequential. So let's see what we can glean from this chapter. So, just in review, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, very close friend to the king, the most powerful man on the planet at this era of history. His name was King Artaxerxes. And because Nehemiah was the cupbearer, that mean, meant he was the food taster. And so 
basically he was there. So if somebody poisoned the food, goodbye cupbearer, but long live the king. And so he developed a very close friendship with the king. And because he lived with a king, he lived like a king in all the opulence found in royalty of those days. And as he's surrounded by all this wealth and privilege and prestige, it says that his brother Hanani came to the citadel of Susa. The citadel of Susa was simply the palace of King Artaxerxes, and it was a palatial palace. But so many years earlier, the Jews had been captured and taken away, and and after 70 years of captivity, the Babylonians said, you can go back to Jerusalem, go back and and do what you want to do and worship God the way you want to worship it. So Hananiah, Nehemiah's brother, was one of those who went back to Jerusalem. And he came and, and Nehemiah says, tell me the condition of God's people and tell me the condition of God's city, the city of Jerusalem. And Hananiah said, the, the, the story is bad news because the wall is still in shambles and the gates have been burned. That wall represented not only safety for the people inside the city, but it represented God's honor, God's reputation. Nehemiah's thoughts immediately turned to the king when he gets that report. Not the king of Persia. His thoughts went to the king of heaven. He was worried about God's reputation and God's honor among the people who didn't know him. He didn't want them to look at the condition of that wall and say, that's how God's people live? Can't God provide for them? Can't God protect them? Can't God rebuild what's been destroyed? That wall had laid decimated for 141 years. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah found what I call this holy discontentment in his heart. And his mind started reeling and his heart started pumping. And he thought to himself, that's not okay with me. It's not okay with me that God's name is being mocked among pagan nations and people that don't know God and aren't part of God's people. It's not okay for me that God's people live in that condition. And he thought to himself, something, someone has to do something. And then he thought, I need to do something. And a fire began to build in his heart. And he began to get this holy discontentment that said, it's not okay with me. And I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to make myself available to God And in the previous chapter, chapter 2, Nehemiah finds himself in Jerusalem after praying for four months. And it says this in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well, the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. And so I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any, anyone else who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the glorious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Nehemiah was in Persia, like I said, living like a king. And God called him out of Persia. 
And as he began to undertake this monumental task, he was probably filled with anxiety and fear and uncertainty and a little bit of confusion like we get when God leads us to do things for the first time or difficult things. But he was also probably filled with a lot of excitement that something was going to be done, something was going to be built, something was going to be repaired, God's name was going to be restored. And so he made an 800-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem. And he was riding on a donkey the whole way. And the people with him, many of them were walking on foot. And now he just finished a lonely midnight inspection of the wall while everybody slept. He's examining what needed to be done. He's discovered God's will. He's discovered God's plan and strategy. He's got God's, whim, God's timing. And this event began as a time of vision. And then it moved into that phase of preparation. But now it's time to put the plan into action. It's so easy to live lives constantly planning and never actually getting involved in doing what the plan was designed to do. So Nehemiah turned to God's people in Jerusalem. As I said, they had been freed recently from 70 years of slavery. They had never seen or known firsthand what it felt like to be used by God. They'd been slaves. They were slaves to the Babylonians and slaves to the Persians and the Medes. They had only heard of other people's stories about what God can do and will do. Kind of like the tendency for us as we read scripture thinking, man, God would never do that with me. Oh, God did that then, but he's not going to do that now. He does it in different ways, but he does a lot of the same things in every generation. Nehemiah inspired God's people with a vision of what God could do through them. Not somebody else, not somewhere else, not another time. Now, here, today, through us. God is going to rebuild his city, but he's first going to rebuild his people. And so in chapter 1, Pastor Rod told us about the need. Pastor 2, he rallied the citizens of Jerusalem. Now in chapter 3, it's time to work. The wall will actually start being built. And the, the, the focus of this story switches from Nehemiah, the man of God, to the wall, the work of God. As I said, up till now, everything's just been in preparation. Now chapter 3 explodes into action, and it's exciting to watch God's people embrace God's plan for their life. It's exciting to see people who have never been really used by God in any significant way all of a sudden be used by God and to rebuild his city by be rebuilding his wall. You know, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus looked out over a crowd and he said, take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Have you ever wondered what that yoke is? You know, I've taught this, that the yoke was the, the ministry that God has for you or the work that God has. I think the yoke that it's talking about there is simply God's plan for your life. God's design is for everybody who knows him and follows Jesus to have abundant life. But there's also a unique call on everybody's life that God has uniquely and specifically for you. And your highest goal in life after knowing God is to find out what God's plan is for your life, what your story is supposed to be. 
And it's exciting when that happens. But you know what? Notice God doesn't force his plan on anybody's life. He said, take my yoke. It's here for the taking, and so few take it. And so few ever find that plan of God for their life. One thing that this chapter shows, God is a great believer in writing down names. You know, in Malachi, Malachi was an Old Testament prophet that God spoke through like he did a lot of the Old Testament prophets. And in thinking about his people, one time God said, they will be my treasured possession." And it says, a book of remembrance was written with the names of all those people who spoke often about God. God took note of everybody who thought about and talked about him. In the book of Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible where it talks about the return of Jesus and it talks about the Lamb's book of life and every name will be written in that. God writes down names for a reason. It's not because he's forgetful, but he writes down those names to honor people who embrace his plan for their life. So there's several things that we need to learn from chapter three and, and, you know, go home and read it and then ask yourself, what can we glean from this? But the first thing to, to observe is that when God wants to accomplish something, he usually begins with his people. Almost exclusively, not always, but the vast majority of time, God uses his people to fulfill his purpose, to carry out his will. It's remarkable. You know why? Because the church is the hope of the world. When when the world finds itself with no answers, where does it turn? Does it turn to the politicians? No, they cause the confusion in the first place. Do they turn to the military or the economists? They turn to people who know Jesus. At least the smart ones do. The church is the hope of the world. Let me tell you, we don't have a drug problem in America. We have a sin problem that causes people to run to drugs. We don't have marriage problems in America. We have a sin problem that affects our marriages. We don't have a racial problem in America. We have a sin problem that causes people to separate by race and hate people who aren't just like them. If you look at every problem of our culture today, it has a spiritual source, a spiritual origin, uh, uh, origination. And, and, and the, 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 the solution to these problems in our culture are spiritual. The church is the hope of the world because God has entrusted to us the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, unto eternal salvation. And until then... It is the key to abundant life and unity and love and harmony and peace. The church is the hope of the world. But like I said, God doesn't force anyone to serve him. He waits for people to make the choice to serve him. Like maybe he's waiting here today for some people that raise their hand and say, here, God, I'm available. Use me. Thank God he doesn't need ability. He looks for availability. Another thing to notice in this chapter is that 31 times Nehemiah says things like next to them, behind him, beside them on the wall. This effort would take unity and cooperation of everybody. Each builder would have to do their specific task and each builder would have to depend on all the other builders to do their part as well. This is exactly how he's designed the local church. Everybody has a part to play. 
Those parts are different and unique, but God has designed you to fulfill your part. We have all, if this is your church home, have been called to build a church named Sanctuary. And we each have a role to play. You have an active participatory ministry in this church. I don't know what it is, but God designed you to meet that need. We all have a a need to support this this church financially. You know, the, the, the money that's donated, if you will, to this church doesn't just go to bills and expenses. Lives are being transformed. Families are being cared for. The poor are being fed. The homeless have homes. That's what our our, our reasonable act of service accomplishes. We've got to have a willingness to share the gospel and to share your story with other people. Jesus met a woman in the New Testament one time by a well, and she was the, the, the source of a citywide revival, and all she did was she heard what Jesus said. She went back and told the people that she lived close to, come and hear a man. And it says the entire city crossed the line of faith and trusted God. Be willing to share your story. Jesus healed a blind man in the New Testament one time, and they said, well, how did he do it? And what authority did he use? And what name did he use? He said, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. That was his story. What's yours? Because there's power in your story and your, your willingness to invite other people to this place. Those are all some of the active callings on our life to serve God. You being a part of this church is not by chance. I, I will go as far as to say that God designed this church with you in mind because he knew you were going to be a part of it and he knew what asset you brought to the rest of the group. He knew what need you would fill, fulfill. He knew how you would contribute to the overall health of a body of believers like this. So it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. It's probably speaking about the politicians and the civic leaders there in Jerusalem because they loved to be called nobles. And the nobles thought that this work was beneath them, that they were too good or they were too important to participate in a construction project. But you know, I thought about something that Isaiah said in Isaiah 32. He said, the noble men make noble plans and by noble deeds, they stand. There's a nobility in serving God. But you don't serve God with noble plans or noble words. You serve God with noble deeds. That's a high goal, a high calling for all of us. Serve God Get out of the planning stage into the building stage. In verse 10 of this chapter, it says, Adjoining this, uh, Jediah, son of his father, made repairs opposite his house. I noticed that house is mentioned in verse 10, in verse 23, in verse 28, in verse 29, in verse 30. They each worked on the portion of the wall that they lived. Because home is everyone's first mission field whether it's parents to children, whether it's husband and wife to each other, to their spouse, home and where we live is always our first mission field. It should be the highest priority we have. It should get the same type of effort and attention anywhere else gets. Notice what Jesus said to the disciples when he was sending them out with the gospel. 
He said, go to, Jer- go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see what he was doing? Those are concentric circles that go out. You start in Jerusalem where you're at, and then you can go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. They didn't dream of some far-off adventure where they would be, be used by God. God put them at the portion of the wall where they lived. God has strategically placed every one of us where he wants us. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that. I know it doesn't seem like that because we just frankly don't feel like we have that much to offer or we're that important. But God has you at the house that he wanted you to have or the school or the office or in the neighborhood or at the church that he wanted you. You don't believe that. Listen to what the writer of Acts says in Acts 17. From one man, he, God, made all the people of the world. Now they live all over the earth. He decided exactly when they should live and he decided exactly where they should live. Think about that. God could have planted you on this earth in any era, any generation, the previous one, the next one, or a thousand years ago or a thousand. He picked this time in history for you to be here the exact time, and he has you in the exact place he wants you for a purpose. You have been created by God on purpose for a purpose. There's a reason that I moved from the Midwest in 1975 as a young 19-year-old kid out to California. I didn't know what that reason was. I was in college on an athletic scholarship, blew my knee out. They wanted me to still go to school, classes, And I said, I got a better idea. I'm going to go to California. That's what I did. I got involved in an industry. At 22, I was a business owner. And I'm sad. I know what my future looks like. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And then God ambushed me. And I decided to make a a change in my life. This is the 70s. It was the full drug culture. I moved out of the area. Some of you have heard this story before, but pretend like you didn't. Um, Moved out up north. My brother introduced me to my future wife. They were going to Bible college together. I was a brand new Christian. We got married eight months later and moved down here. Next month will be our 40th anniversary. But we got married and moved back down here. I went back to, the work, back to work for the company I started. And we realized I don't want to see my old friends. I'll get sucked back into lifestyle, but I don't know any Christians. Let's start a Bible study. Maybe we'll develop some friends. And so that's what we did. The first three weeks, nobody came. Fourth week, a guy that I used to party with heard I was in town. Him and his then fiance came over. And three weeks later, there was 32 people in my living room, all people I used to sell drugs to. And we accidentally started a church. I was trying to develop friendships. God developed a church. And it was something that lasted almost four decades. I didn't know why I was in California. I can remember getting out here thinking, man, what am I doing here? I was a fish out of water. But God was maneuvering me into the position, just like he's maneuvering you into the position and place he wants you to be. Verse 12 says, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, uh, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. He worked right alongside with his daughters. That says a lot about them too. What he didn't do, he didn't say, well, I'm not able to do what the other men can do because they've got sons and men are stronger than women. And he didn't focus on what he didn't have. He focused on what he had. 
even though he could have felt like he wasn't able to work or accomplish like the rest of them, he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work. There was no excuses. He didn't focus on what he didn't have. He focused on and did with what he did have. Verse 14 says the dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, or whatever his name is, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth He built it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. He wasn't too proud to work on the dung gate, the gate where they took all the trash of the city out. He knew that doing anything for God makes it a noble cause. You know what my first ministry was when I left here and moved up north and my first ministry, the first, the first week I was a Christian, I was going to this little church, South Valley Chapel in San Jose. And out back of the church, they had, I don't know, it, I don't know how big the plot was, but in the middle of what I was doing, it, it seemed like it was about a thousand acres. They had weeds about six feet tall. And I said, I'm going to cut those weeds. They didn't even give me a weed trimmer. They gave me a handheld sickle. I felt like the grim reaper, you know? Three days, I cut weeds. My hands were bleeding with blisters. And I was doing it because grace was amazing. My life was changed. And I believe with all my heart that God was just as pleased with those three days of work that he has ever been of any message I've spoken over the last 40 years from a stage. Anything done for Jesus is noble. And this guy knew it. He, he, he said, I'll, I'll work on, the, on the, the dung gate. Verse 20, it says, next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance to the house of Eliashib, the high priest. It says, Baruch zealously worked. Now, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what set him apart, but God saw something in what he was doing and took notice. There's a story of a man in the Old Testament. His name is Caleb. And I won't go into the backstory because we're running out of time, but Caleb uh, was, was discussed or mentioned by God six times in the Old Testament. All six times it says, Caleb, serve me wholeheartedly. That when people do their best for God, God takes note. He, Baruch wanted to offer God his best because he was offering God his life. And he realized that his work was more than a job. It was an offering and a sacrifice of praise and worship and thanksgiving that he was offering to God. You know, Christians don't just work for companies or bosses. We work for God no matter what we do. The Bible says, whatever you do, do heartily as unto God. And that's what Baruch did. Verse 30 says, next to them, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. The name Meshulam means devoted. Another Bible version says he lived in a one-room chamber on the wall. So obviously he didn't have a lot of material wealth, and he probably felt insignificant, kind of like we all do, don't we? We look around, people look so much more qualified, so much more inspired, so much more enthusiastic. We look, think of ourselves, we don't have a lot to offer. And he could have felt like that. But it says he worked just like the people with the big houses worked. Because he was devoted to God and that made him a faithful man. And God honored him by recording his name along with all the other people with big houses. At this point of chapter 3, Nehemiah switches gears from the workers to the gates. The gates of the city, around the city of Jerusalem. 
And he takes special care to identify some of those gates. The Bible says the Old Testament is written as examples to to give us warnings and reminders of things. Biblical principles, spiritual truths, promises of God. And so the gates represent spiritual truths and spiritual examples for us to take note of. You can find the gospel in the gates of Jerusalem. God's plan for saving lost people. The first gate that Nehemiah mentions on this construction, rebuild, reconstruction, is the sheep gate. The sheep gate was also known as the lion gate. It's interesting that this is the gate that Jesus entered when he came into Jerusalem. Jesus was known as both the lion and the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, and he enters through the gate called the sheep gate and the lion gate. And the building began, the building of the wall began in verse 1 at the sheep gate, and it ended in verse 32 at the sheep gate, because Christianity begins and ends at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Begins and ends, and that's what began and what finished the reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem. Next, he mentions the fish gate. He reminds us something Jesus said one time when he said, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Part of our service to God is involved, involves telling our story to other people about what God has done for us and, and what he promises to do for them. The fish gate. Then next to that, he comes to the old gate. And that reminds us of the old ways of living versus the new ways of thinking today that people do, the political correctness. The Bible says that some people call evil good and good evil were in those days. And this is a reminder to go back to the tried and true beliefs and biblical standards and teachings of what's right and what's wrong. People are always trying to come up with new truth. Listen, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. It's time to get back to the basics of time-tested Christianity and the simplicity of the gospel of God's grace. And that gospel says that you're saved by grace through faith, plus nothing. So love God and love people. Next, he came to the valley gate, and that represents that there are difficulties in this life, the valleys of life, so to speak. This gate reminds us that if you want to follow God, you have to give up that other God called self and what's comfortable and what's convenient. The Bible says that it's through many difficulties and hardships that you enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, nobody gets out of this world unscathed. A lot of people think that once they embrace Christianity and they start trying to serve God, their problems are going to go away. Your problems have just started. But I will tell you this, you can either have a deep faith Or you can have an easy life, but you can't have both. Because it's through the dark times and the valleys of life that God does some of his greatest teaching. The next gate, next to the valley gate, was the dung gate, and that's the gate of low honor. The gate that was low honor, but vital to the health of the city. Just like ministries of low honor, as if there were any, are vital to the health of a church. You know, all the attention comes up on the stage about the ministries because they're the ones that are visible. Do you know how many people are serving God right now with children and babies and serving coffee and setting up and tearing down 
and all the other people, the technical team, that aren't on the stage, and it seems like, well, their ministries really aren't as important as other people's ministries. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Like I said, anything you do for Jesus is noble and important. And then it says they came to the the fountain gate. This represents the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, there will be a fountain, streams of living water flowing from you and your life. In other words, you're going to be a different person to the point where people who knew you before are going to think, who is this? Because you aren't just an improved, modified version of your old self. You're a new creation in Christ. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must first be emptied of yourself. And the more empty you are, the more filled you get. From the fountain gate, Nehemiah moves on to the water gate. Nixon was nowhere in sight. Water in the Bible is used as a symbol of God's word sometimes. You know what's interesting about the water gate? It's the only gate that didn't need to be repaired. It wasn't burnt and it wasn't broken. Of all the gates that needed to be repaired, it was the water gate that didn't. God's word never needs to be improved upon. It never needs to be repaired. It is perfect just the way that it is. And then next you go to the horse gate. A horse in in the Bible was a symbol of battle. When When a coming king from another kingdom would come into a kingdom, if he came riding a donkey, he was coming in peace like Jesus came when he entered Jerusalem. But if he was riding a horse, he was coming in battle. This gate reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle. And most most of the time, the, the battlefield is our minds. Temptations, doubt, fear, uncertainty, insecurity, confusion, unbelief. Then he goes to the east gate, Think about it, the east gate was the gate that Jesus will return at, at his second coming, the Bible says. This gate faced east, that meant it faced the sunrise each morning, and it's a reminder of our hope in God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, because the Bible says the mercies of the Lord are new every morning, every every sunrise. So for those times we feel defeated or discouraged, this gate reminds us of the promise of God that yesterday's failures will be met with the dawn of God's mercy, a fresh start, and new opportunities. It's it's an opportunity to put yesterday behind you and start fresh and new the next morning. And it's a reminder of the ultimate hope we have, Jesus' return. The Bible calls that the blessed hope. And then finally, we come to the inspection gate. Like I said, Jerusalem had gates on every side of the city, And it was at this gate that King David would stand. He loved his troops and they loved him. And he would stand at this gate to inspect the troops when they returned home from a battle. And there at that gate, he would reward the heroes and those who had been wounded in battle. This is a picture of our heavenly inspection gate. The gate that will lead us into God's very presence. That one day in every one of our futures, the king of heaven who loves us will welcome us home. And it's at that gate that he will reward the spiritual heroes and those who were wounded fighting the good fight of faith. These gates served as reminders of God's promises, 
reminders of spiritual truths, reminders of the things to believe in and cherish. So what do the gates of your life tell you? Some gates may need to be repaired, and some of these spiritual truths may need to be rebuilt in our lives. For some of us, they may just need to be guarded and protected. But ask yourself, do you still believe God's promises? Are you still grateful for God's goodness? Is grace still amazing? So here at the end of the roll call, chapter 3, the work on the wall has just begun for the Israelites. Notice, they didn't lack materials. They didn't lack strategy. They didn't lack leadership. They didn't lack manpower. God provided everything they needed to succeed and to carry out his purpose. God has promised to provide everything we need to live the life that he wants us to live. Nobody can say, I couldn't do it because God said, I gave you what you needed to do. This is a chapter full of God's promises. It's more than just full of names and gates. It's full of God's promises. God's promise to work for us like he did on the cross. God's promise to work in us to help us become the people that he wants us to become and promises to work through us to touch other people and to change other lives. The book of Nehemiah is not so much a story of how to build a wall. It's a story of how to build a life. It's a story how to live like a Christian should live. And it reminds us, God is still building today. Not, lo- not walls, but lives. And he's building each life here today.